it occurred to me the other day that I now possess pretty much everything I wanted out of life when I was 20. I kind of went down through the list. And like, I, I had this list. Did you guys have this list? I had this list in my head when I was 20 years old of, of all the stuff that I want. And it hit me the other day that I, I have it. I, I just, I went down through the list. A, a wife that loves Jesus more than she loves me. Beautiful inside and out. Check. A bunch of kids that are into the same nerdy stuff I like. Check. Right? The, the, the privilege of preaching in a large church in a great city. Check. A nice home in a good neighborhood with enough room for my family and my friends. Check. A Parker Fly guitar in the complete 12-volume history of Middle Earth. Check. I've arrived. <laughs> like, Don't you get that little thrill of joy every time you use Google Maps and you get to your location that says, you've arrived. I know. Right? Feels so good. Life is good. I have attained, I have achieved everything I wanted out of life when I was 20. In just 25 years, I've accomplished this. So, now what? I mean, our list changes, right? It, it grows <laughs> as we get older. I, but I am kind of facing this existential question. Like, I, everything I wanted when I was young, I pretty much have at this point. That's success, right? By the way, I'm not boasting, except to boast in the Lord, as Paul said. God did most of this for me, okay? Um, but I can look in the mirror, and I can be like, you are a success. <laughs> in many ways, I, I, I guess that's true. I mean, I, I did the work, you know. As Malcolm Gladwell said, I put in the 10,000 hours. Um, in other ways, I know I've got room to grow, and, and you probably do too, if, even if you're 25 years beyond me. I, that's success, right? We're going to talk about that today. Thank you so much for being here. For those of you here in the room, brave the cold and the snow, thank you. Those joining us online, thanks for logging in. Appreciate you doing that. You might have made the smarter decision today, uh, but I'm grateful that uh, no matter whether you're with us virtually or here physically, uh, that you're here to take a second, fill out your connection card, uh, let us know. Um, I want to talk about something really important today. We're going to take a hard look at success. So open your Bibles to Matthew 24, verse 14. Uh, we're going to start there, Matthew 24, 14. The sign, that, that says uh, 37, but I think, yeah, that's a misprint. It's 14. Sorry about that. Matthew 25, verse 14. We've been in a series of messages called Lenses. And for the last couple months, we've been looking at how to develop and nurture a Christian worldview. And today is the success lens. Now, the more skeptical among you might be thinking, oh, man, this is the money sermon. <laughs> and it's cold and snowy. Like, I got out in the cold for a money sermon. Doggone it. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about that a little bit, but only because our thinking about success is so tied to finances. See, the thing is that the success lens is a little bit like a mirror. It, it, it's, it's, it's really like a mirror. Here's the thing about success and, and a mirror. The, the, the closer you are to it, the more you can only see yourself. Right? I mean, the closer I put the mirror to my face, the more I, I mean, like, I can see my sweater, that's it. <laughs> 
in this thing because it's real close. And success is a little bit that way. The closer you get to it, the more you have to work really hard to not just see yourself. So I want to give you some tools today that will help you see more in this success lens than just yourself. Here's what I want to tell you today. Here's the big idea. Success is managing what God gives you so well that he gives you more. Now, you need to understand that the more in that word, the, the, the more rather in that statement is, is almost never just financial. We, we've got a much bigger lens than just money, okay? Jesus told a parable to his disciples that illustrated this principle perfectly. It's probably pretty familiar territory, but I think it would be good for us to read it again. Look with me at Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold. This is like literally millions and millions and millions of dollars. It's more money than this guy could ever earn in his whole life. To another, two bags, and to another, one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put the money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. This strikes us as uniquely unjust and unfair, but you've got to listen to Jesus here. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an, ab an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, the way that Jesus defines success here is consistent with the rest of what the scriptures have to say about it. Our world defines success differently than Jesus does. Dave talked about that a little bit, right? Fame and fortune, right? That, that tends to be the way that we think about it. For Jesus, though, it's different. Now, you look at the dictionary and we see this definition that success is a noun. It's the fact of getting or achieving wealth, respect, or fame, Secondly, it's the correct or desired result of an attempt. I tried, and I was a, it was a success. It worked. For most people, especially Americans, that's success. Jesus defines it differently. So if we're going to use the same lens that Jesus does, if we're going to see the world the way Jesus sees the world, which is what this whole series is about, we need to use his lens when we look at success and work 
and money. Okay? To that end, we find that success is simultaneously two things. Here's the first thing that success is. Success is a stewardship. Success is a stewardship. From the point of the view of the Bible, work and the success that comes with it is God's idea. The work existed before the fall, and therefore work and the success that comes from it is an inherently a moral good, right? It, it, work existed prior to the, the fall. In the creation story, who is the one doing all the work? Talk to me, church. God. God is the first worker. God is the best worker. <laughs> the creation story also says that at the end of each day, God called his work good. This is good. This is good. Six times, this is good. And then he creates mankind. And this is very good. <laughs> As beings made in his image, we are called to be stewards to carry on his good work of creating and filling the world with good things. That's the view of success. And this, uh, this idea that we are, we are given to be uh, stewards of this role. God has, has given his role as the worker to his creation to also continue to fill the world with good things. Professor Tolkien called it being a sub-creator to continue that work. It's a stewardship. God has given this responsibility to you, okay? And, and this stewardship is twofold. First of all, it is a stewardship of something good. It's a stewardship of something good. Genesis 2.15 says... The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Some, some folks have this view that work is bad. Uh, you know, it, it's, you know, TGIF, right? Thank God it's Friday. I can't wait. I just can't wait for the weekend, right? There's songs about working for the weekend, right? That's not the view of the Scripture, God gives us the Sabbath as a way of rest and as, as a, uh, a healthy rhythm so that he can continue to work. Hebrews says that God is continuing to work. Work is something good, and God has given us this stewardship. Work existed before the fall. Before sin entered the picture, there was work. Work is not the byproduct of sin. Toil is the byproduct of sin. God tells Adam later in Genesis 3, after the fall, he says, now your work will become toil, and by the sweat of your brow, you'll pull food out of the ground. And toil gets corrupted even further by human sin into slavery. Slavery is a corruption of toil, which is a corruption of good and godly work. You see, basically, the viewpoint of much of the ancient world was that work was for the slaves. It's for the poor. An exception for that in their viewpoint was made for highly skilled craftspeople. We see a little bit of that in the book of Exodus. They're still considered lower class. <laughs> they just can more easily provide for their family. In the ancient world, the middle class was about this big, right? You had, you had a fairly small upper class and a ginormous lower class. And that's the, that's the world of the Bible for pretty much its entire time frame that it talks about. In a Colson Center blog addressing the great resignation, I'm sure you've heard of this, all of these people who are quitting their jobs, right, that's going on right now. John Stone Street wrote about this, and he, he said, 
because of the uniqueness of the biblical framework, even er the way early Christians approached work was a very different viewpoint than their pagan neighbors. And this just, it just continued to filter out in, into culture, right? The Christian perspective of work is it's done for the glory of God. Work is something good. It's a stewardship that he's given me. I need to do my best to do it well. In the Middle Ages in Europe, Christian monasteries became centers of innovation and technology. The water wheel, Romans had known about the water wheel forever, but they started using it in monasteries to grind grain. Romans didn't need it because they had slaves. But Christians were trying to elevate work and try to make it better for people. And so they embraced technology and they embraced innovation to make work better and safer and more productive. Why? Because it's a, it's a stewardship of something good. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, wrote that the work of a Beethoven and the work of a charwoman, this is a, a woman who went around tending the fire, cleaning out ash and setting new fires in these large aristocratic houses in England. If you've seen Downton Abbey, you know what I'm talking about, right? The work of a Beethoven and the work of a charwoman become spiritual on precisely the same condition, that of being offered to God, of being done humbly as to the Lord. The Christian perspective of work is that it is, it is something good. It's to be done to the glory of God. And work and the success of stewardship of something good. And this is also something that we see in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. The, the teacher, the wisest man who's ever lived, writes this. This is what I have observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Have you heard the expression, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life? What the teacher says here in Ecclesiastes is kind of the underpinning of that idea. So success is a stewardship of something good, right? It's God's idea. He created it. He gave it to us. But it's, there's something else. There's another aspect to this. It's also a stewardship of something necessary. The stewardship, the success is a stewardship of something necessary. And this is where the Christian view of work and the success that comes from it really pushes back against the prevailing uh, beliefs of the time. According to the Indian philosopher Vishal Mangalwadi, the Christian West for over a thousand years has used technologies to make the work of the common person safer and better and easier as well as to aid in production and productivity rather than to cater to the elites. Now we might come back to this and circle back on it in a few weeks when we talk about the culture lens. But what he's saying is that for, for most of human history, outside the influence of Christianity, any kind of innovation, any kind of new and wonderful thing generally got used to make life better for the elites and the poor just had to suffer. Christianity completely upended that. And all these innovations, all this technology, all these things that make work better are ultimately designed to help the poor get a leg up and maybe not be so poor and be able to provide not only for themselves, but also for other people so that they can become generous. You see how that, how that goes. 
Why, would they, why, why does this happen? Why is it a stewardship of something necessary? Because work and the success that comes from it is viewed as necessary. You're supposed to do this. It's required of you. This is the expression of the viewpoint that Paul has in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Look at this. Paul writes, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day. He's talking about his tent-making ministry, right? He made tents during the day, preached and held meetings in the evenings. That was, and that was Paul's life while he was with the Thessalonians. He said, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have a right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now you need to understand that the church in the early days had a, a benevolence ministry. And if someone was having a hard time, at least we're gonna make sure you eat, right? That we can't maybe pay everything off and get you out of debt, but at least we're gonna make sure you eat today. And, and what he's saying is you have people in the church who are just like, well, man, if the church is gonna pay for that, why do I even need to go to work? I, I'll just ask the church for lunch, you know? And Paul's like, "Uh -uh uh-uh, this is a stewardship of something necessary. If you're not willing to work, you don't eat. He said, we hear that among you are are idle and we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. I love love it when a a wordplay in Greek is also wordplay in English. That's beautiful. (laughs) You're like nerd. Anyway, um, such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Each week in this series, I've been recommending a, a couple books that I want to, that I help, I think help us see through this lens. Uh, the first one I want to recommend is uh, Kingdom Calling by Dr. Amy L. Sherman. Um, this, if you are still working, if, if you have not yet retired, and maybe even if you had, I, I, boy, I cannot recommend this highly enough. It is so good. This is such an excellent book and really does a great job of giving you kind of an idea of like, how do I do this? How do I live as a Christian at work? How can I bring the kingdom of God into what I do for a living? Um, It's it's absolutely fantastic. One of the things that she keys in on is the Latin word vocare. The Latin word vocare means I call. And it's the root of our word vocation. So when we use that term, like this is what you do for a job, what her perspective is (laughs) that God has called you to that. It's just like what C.S. Lewis was saying earlier. And if it's your job to write symphonies, write symphonies. If it's your job to clean out the fireplace and get a new fire ready, do that and do it for the glory of God. And she gives just really, really, really practical uh, ideas about how to do that. Now it's aimed at people like me, pastors, to equip their congregations, folks like you, on how to do this. But you would get so much out of this if you read it. If you're still working, it's absolutely outstanding. She uses this term vocational stewardship to describe this. I want you to look at how she defines vocational stewardship. She says, it's the intentional and strategic deployment of our vocational power. Now, here's how she defines vocational power. Your knowledge, your platform, your networks, your position, your influence, your skills, and your reputation. All of those things are your vocational power to advance foretastes of God's kingdom. 
What she's saying is that in your job, you are supposed to be helping people get just a taste of what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. And you can do that as a Christian banker. And you can do that as a Christian nurse. And you can do that as a Christian teacher. And you can do that as a Christian welder. See where I'm going with this. Not only does the book give you a vision for doing it, it, there's really practical examples and tools like here's how to do this in your job and it talks about ways to do that. And I think if you're retired, you can apply a lot of the same principles to just life in your apartment complex or community or or neighborhood or whatever. I mean, a lot of those things, uh, you know, are, are transitive that way. In the parable of the talents that we read earlier, this, the task of growing the master's wealth is a stewardship that's given to the servants. That means that in the mind of Jesus, your work and the success that comes from it, your time spent doing it, is a stewardship that's been given to you by Jesus. Paul says it's a necessary thing. You should do this. Maybe we could image it this way, right? So we're using, we're using a mirror as our lens. So let's say um, you're, you're getting ready in the morning, right? You're, you're standing at the mirror, you know, you're, guys, you're shaving, ladies, you're, you're putting your face on or whatever, but you're getting ready in the morning. And all of a sudden you see in the mirror, like Jesus in the flesh is standing behind you. Like he's standing there. And, and, and he speaks and he says to you, um, I have a mission for you at your job tomorrow. What, how are you going to respond? Hang on, let me get a pen. Like, like you know, you're, you, I'm going to write this down because this is Jesus. What I'm telling you is that he has. <laughs> He's doing it right now. As Amy Sherman says, a vital part of vocational stewardship for the common good is a focus by believers on transforming the institutions in which they work. And she actually uses much of the same wholeness language that we do here at Chapel Rock. She says that that part of your vocational stewardship should aim to foster peace or wholeness with God and with self and with others and with creation. And that's just a taste. There's a lot more there. But I want you to think of your work and the success and wealth that that it brings as a stewardship. God gave it to you. It's, It's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. But he gave it to you to use. That's the way you should view it. But there's a second part of this lens. And it's, it's that success is a reward. Success is a reward. I heard a story about an elderly pastor that died and was waiting in line at the pearly gates. And in front of him is a guy in a, you know, a leather jacket and a loud Hawaiian shirt and, you know, old blue jeans with holes in the knees and, and uh, ratty old tennis shoes. And, and he's got sunglasses popped on the top of his head. And he's standing there right in front of this, this preacher who, who died. And St. Peter says to this guy, who are you? that I may know whether or not to admit you into the kingdom of heaven. And the guy says, I'm Joe Cohen, taxi driver, NYC. Peter looks at his list and he smiles and says to the taxi driver, welcome, take this silken robe and golden staff and enter into the glory of the kingdom. Taxi driver goes in, he's high-fiving everybody, fist-bumping people, angels as he walks in, you know, he's pumped. Peter turns to the minister says the same thing. Who are you that I may know whether or not to admit you into the kingdom of heaven? Pastor straightens his back, stands tall, says, I am Dr. Joseph Snow, pastor for 43 years at St. Mary's in New York City. Peter consults his list. He says to the minister, welcome, 
take this cotton robe and wooden staff and enter into the kingdom. The minister says, now just a minute. That man was a taxi driver. He got a silken robe and a golden staff. You give me this cotton robe and a wooden staff. What, what is going on? Peter says, Joseph, you of all people should know that here, grace is the only thing that gets you in the door. But rewards are handed out based on results. And while you preached, people slept. While he drove, people prayed. Come on in. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it doesn't work that way. That's a professional opinion. Um, <laughs> but one of the main ideas in Scripture, which remember is the master lens, right, is that success is a divinely appointed reward for excellence and hard work. And here's what we have to remember in seeing through the success lens. It's a byproduct. It's a byproduct. Uh, there are two aspects to this. One is that it's an outcome, not a goal. Now, I'm, I stole that, and you're going to meet the person I stole it from here in a little while, but it's an outcome, not a goal. Success is not something that you should be aiming for. You do your work well to the glory of God, it will come, right? Proverbs 11.10 says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. That's really Amy's kind of main text here, Dr. Sherman in her work. This idea of prospering is the biblical idea of success. This is flourishing. This is wholeness. The writer of Proverbs says, when that happens, the whole city is made glad. And then we read in Proverbs twenty two twenty nine, it says, do you see someone skilled in their work? They will serve before kings. They will not serve before officials of low rank. Some people are like, I want to be a CEO. That's great. You should start by being an excellent shift manager at McDonald's. You know, make sure that when people pull up to the window, what they hear is, welcome to McDonald's. May I take your order instead of, what do you want? True story actually happened. And I, I, I just about said, I want to go to Chick-fil-A, but it's Sunday. Um, <laughs> they do their work well there. That's the Lord's chicken. Anyway, um, <laughs> if you're doing your work for the glory of God, success is an outcome, even if he doesn't seem like it at the time. Craig Brian Larson wrote in Leadership Magazine, doing God's will faithfully, zealously, despite an absence of tangible rewards is a worthy goal and a colossal success in itself. Success is an outcome, not a goal. It's <laughs> what Moses was reminding the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 8. 17 to 18, he says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. What Moses is saying there is that success is what God gives you as a reward for using the gifts he's given you. It's not the goal you should chase. And it's that truth that brings up a second aspect of what success is, that success is a testimony, not a windfall. You know, I, I used to joke that it's in God's best interest to let me win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes because I tithe, you know. Um, I don't think God thinks that's funny because I haven't won yet. Um, a lot of people have this idea that, that real success is reaching the pinnacle of your career and, and that with that comes big bucks, Here's the thing, though, that's not 
That's not the case. Blake, I'm going to skip ahead a, a little bit here. Um, next week is Super Bowl Sunday. It's about the only thing we still do together as a, as a, as a nation, isn't it? You know, you might not be the biggest sports fan in the world, but you're still going to watch the game because I'm an American, right? Um, those guys will make more in an hour than probably anybody in this room will make in their entire lifetime. Uh, one, uh, very few of them, though, are seeing through the success lens and seeing things differently. One of them, he's not playing in the game Sunday. Don't ask Paul Vink. It's still a sore spot. But Kirk Cousins, who plays for the Vikings, starting quarterback, he makes more in a year than most of us will ever even hope of making and maybe our entire family. Um, you know, NFL's careers have an expiration date, though. In fact, the joke is NFL stands for not for long. <laughs> um, and so he's really working. He's a committed Christian. He's really working to try to create a legacy where his family can continue to give even after he's done playing. Um, in 2005, he was in high school. He went to, he went to this um, conference and he heard about the ministry of the International Justice Mission. Do you know who they are? International Justice Mission is someone you should pray for. They rescue um, young women and boys from slavery, sexual slavery, forced prostitution all over the world. It's an incredible ministry. And he went to this conference and he heard about that. And it was just like, he, he, he made a decision. He walked, he says, I walked out of that service that night and prayed, God, give me more to steward. Give me more, an opportunity to help someday. It didn't happen immediately. After college, he spent six years with the Washington, used to be Redskins, now it's Commanders. I don't know if you saw the news this week. He made $46.5 million in six years. In 2018, signed a three-year, fully guaranteed $84 million contract with the Minnesota Vikings. He's doing okay. And here's the cool thing. <laughs> Kids are going to get rescued because this guy is seeing through the success lens properly. He's going to use his vocation for the glory of God. Now, are you going to make $84 million in the next three years? Probably not. If you do... We'd love for you to tithe also, but, but this is an example that you can learn from about how to see your vocation, whatever it is that you do for the glory of God. You're probably not going to play professional football, but we do have someone at our church who's been successful. Carl, would you join so me? Thank I, you, Carl. I appreciate you doing this today. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> you, you've, you've been around Chapel Rock quite a while. Uh, but there are some new folks who might not know you. So would you help us get to know you a little bit? Sure. Firstly, I wanted to thank you and congratulate you on this Lenses on the Worldview. This has really been helpful to me. I've enjoyed it, uh, and uh, I'm one of those that understand the kind of preparation uh, that goes into it and the enthusiasm and energy that you apply Praise as well. God. So thank you. You're welcome. So I am a retired Christian and Adonist. Uh, for those of you who don't really understand what that means, uh, following many years of school, I actually had two careers. Firstly, I was a full professor and a department chair and a postgraduate program and residency director at Indiana University for 20 years. That's really do teaching and research and publications to support it. And then as a clinician uh, in private practice, I had an office in Indianapolis and an office here in Avon. My wife and I currently live close to one of our kids and grandkids in Zionsville. I have three children and 12 grandchildren. I uh, appreciate the generous compliment you gave me to uh, imply that I'm an exemplar 
yeah. of success. Uh, I hope I'm remembered as an exemplar of Jesus Christ as, uh, as the end gets closer. Uh, and I agree that success is not a goal in and of itself. It's an outcome. Yeah. Usually I, I stole that line from Carl. We had lunch this week and we were, we were talking about it and he used that. I'm like, oh, that's good. That'll preach. That's going in the sermon. <laughs> it's usually a result of some, of, uh, of some personal characteristics, yeah. determination or work ethic or, uh, or an education. And we already have a mission. You know, having a mission helps you make all decisions. Any decision in your life, if you can focus on it and say, well, how does this serve, you know, our great uh, commission? And a strategy and tactics is what we talk about. Success, really, if it is measured by wealth or awards, it's how you use those hmm. for the commission. It's not what they are themselves. Yeah. And, of course, you can also uh, measure them with, at this stage of life, with contentment and, uh, and peace of mind. But I have to admit, it's kind of revealing to me, of those professional achievements, if you want to call them, how little they mean to me now after being retired for 10 years. And to find what I, is meaningful now is the best effort I can make to kind of restore the balance that you need to have between your family and your work and your faith. So I'm doing my best now to make up for that. So you, we, um, we asked Carl uh, a while back as one of our elders, um, you know, we're, we're thinking about um, the idea of legacy giving, that when, when, you, when you reach the end of your working life, like what do you, what do, you do with that? And so Carl helped lead a part of a team of, of, our, of our guys here uh, at Chapel Rock to kind of help us process through what that looks like for the church. Can you talk about that a little yeah. bit? Just the idea of, okay, I've reached the end of my working life, now what? And some of you who are younger especially need to listen to this because you've got an opportunity to do some stuff now that the people in my position have to, we're playing catch up. You guys can do it now. So check this out. Thanks. I'll do my best to capsulize it. Okay. <laughs> uh, a legacy really is something that you pass to the next generation. It's something uh, that uh, a predecessor gives along. And, of course, it's associated with wealth. It could be anything. The elders uh, asked me and some other elders, a committee with uh, Springer, uh, Doherty, and uh, I saw Matt Teeple yeah. around here somewhere this morning. Andy. Andy. Uh, and Andy Goodwin. We got together uh, to try and find out how we could continue the legacy that was given us. You know, this church was started in 1964. What you're enjoying right here, this mm -hmm. building, these ministries you have right now, is really a legacy. Yeah. It's what's been given to us. It's decisions that other people make, and now it's our point in time to make decisions. Yeah. I really think uh, there might not be uh, a trophy room for me in God's house, <laughs> But I'm going to have an encounter with God, and he's going to go through every decision I ever made in my life mm -hmm. and tell me where he was at and how it affected. So just to say how that did that, I don't know for sure yet, but I think God and I have plenty of time to talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I guess what I wanted to quickly express to you is about planning. Uh, you, you know, to have some kind of finish line in your life. Now, I'm old enough to know that. I didn't think it so much whenever I was younger. Of course, I didn't think I would need it. But in making a financial plan, you, how are you going to know you're going to get, get to the end if you haven't really thought about those things yeah. financially? But let me ask you to consider some other things when you get around to it, and I'd be glad to help some people uh, if they would. Some common questions are, why have I been giving all these resources? Why did God give this to me? Why did he give this uh, education to me? How much is enough for my family? How much should I give to the next steward? 
Hmm. Are my children going to be stewards? Are they going to understand stewardship the same way I did? And should I give now or... Or should I, or should I give later? Right. So you were you were telling me about a book uh, entitled Inheritolatry. So it talked about inheritance and idolatry. They just combined the inheritolatry. Yeah. Um, what did you learn from that book that, that was helpful? Well, first off, that's a made up word, so don't try and. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I got it. Uh, one of the authors was a CEO at uh, at, at Ron Blue and Company. Um, when I mentioned before, what kind of wealth transfer is going to occur? You know. You've heard about the wealth transfer, 60, 70 billion dollars. Trillion. Trillion, trillion. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kurt's uh, uh, cousins, his, <laughs> right, yeah. his, his 50 million sounded like a lot. Yeah. But what, what's going to happen in our generation is literally 70 trillion. Now, think in, about in like, this. In like what, the next 10 years? Is there Four, it's over 40 years. 40 it's years, our generation, me, okay. overlapping yeah. generations. Okay. If you look at that money, it's going to. And if you look at uh, some of the numbers from the Pew Foundation grant about who we are, if you just take the evangelical Christians and look at their portion of that, it was $5 trillion. And if you took among that group those that were committed Christians, if they gave barely 1% of that transfer to uh, building churches, sending missionaries, and translating Bibles to the mm -hmm. 200, yeah. We could achieve the Great Commission in our lifetime, mm. a little more than 1%. And this book describes some of that. So, you know, what we want to do is to try to resource people. You can see something on the screen here that uh, we have some copies available at the, the lobby. I know legacy giving is important to you. Why is it important to you personally? Like, what is your stake in this? No, thank you. You know, let me, let me use an example. Uh, that happened to me. Uh, I told you I moved to Zionsville and I met somebody from Chapel Rock in the past. They recognized me because I had on my T-shirt. My yeah. I didn't recognize them. They came up to me and they said, are you still going to Chapel Rock? And I remember they said it a little more pejoratively than that, <laughs> but I didn't want to get into that. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I, 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 I'm still going to uh, Chapel Rock. Of course. I love Chapel Rock. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't go beyond it. But let me tell you, I started quickly, and I got it for you know what, I got into a Dave Linderman top ten list of why I love <laughs> Chapel Rock. Right? Linda and I were married here 40, 47 years ago. I'm glad she's you not You better here. get that right. I'm yeah, glad yeah. she's not here. Yeah. <laughs> she was in the 915. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've been members over 40 years. Mm -hmm. We were baptized here and brought to a, 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 a saving in Christ by this church. My children were baptized at this church. Dave Mann and other people helped me raise my children to make those choices. I see some of these other teachers here. Initially, this was kind of well located to my, my home until I got started. That was four homes later, <laughs> and I might have a 30-minute drive, but I, don't, but I really don't think about that now. This church is intergenerational. I can look out here, and I can see three different generations of people in this church. I love the Sunday school classes. It gives me an opportunity to use some of the skills in teaching that I've learned. We have communion every week. I love our pastors. We've got a great staff. I could go on. We're elder-led in this decision-making that we have in a restoration church. We have this beautiful building, facilities, that we have essentially uh, inherited. We have a well-managed budget. Uh, I feel needed. I feel like God placed me here. I know. I know. I'm way over 10. All right? But the number one reason is that this is my church. This is my church. I've spent my whole life here, and I think it's where God placed me. And, and I and, want to be a part of its legacy. And, and so you have taken personal steps 
to, to make sure that that happens. Yeah. Like just real quick, just, I mean, so you've got, the, we've got the uh, document on the screen here that people can see. That's one thing you've done. Talk about that. Let me emphasize this first. Every single one of your elders have created a legacy document to be a part of their inheritance. Every single one have done this. It's not just me. Uh, we, Linda and I, as we made up our third will, I'm at that age, you'd have to change it unless you have some flexible things in there. So probably going to be my last, but it's my third will. And I included the church. It's like my family. Yeah. You have a desire to leave. I got three kids. I got 12 grandkids. Got to get through school. I'm looking about how to distribute it. But when I looked at even amounts, there's a charitable amount. And you need to make that plan now. You have, to have, you have to have a plan. I can tell you this. If you don't, as you get older and you get some more assets, they go fast. All of a sudden, you want things. You get things. You need to have a plan in the beginning. Yeah. So first, get a financial plan. Secondly, this is an easy way. I, not easy. Simple way for you to include the church or anybody, really. I'm going to have some copies of these available to you. Yeah, they're at the uh, information center. They're in the information, yeah. Matt and Springer and myself or whoever might be there next next uh, Sunday after each uh, service. Uh, service, and we can ask, answer questions for you about family planning. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a, a financial planner. Matt is. Uh, but, uh, uh, and I didn't stay at the Holiday Inn either. So I'm just <laughs> here to uh, direct you and help you in some of your decision makings. But as you can see, it's as simple as this. With a couple of uh, witnesses, you can sign a document where you say, did you like to give a portion, a percentage, a dollar amount? You can give anything to the National Christian Foundation. We've established a fund with a number. You can just put a number in there. And they can take any asset, by the way, and turn it into something for our church. So, uh, so as, I, as people begin to look through this success lens, one of the ways that I think we're, we're talking about success, right, is, you know, when, when you manage what God gives you, well, he gives you more. And so we want to be the kind of church that does that. And this is a way to help, right? Yeah. And fulfill the great commission Absolutely. in our lifetime. Yeah. Would you express your appreciation yeah. for Carl? Thank you, brother. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. Like I said, each week we've been recommending a couple books. I want to uh, show you the other one. It's called The Way of Life. Uh, by Dr. Gary D. Badcock. And in that book, he writes, the source of vocation must be none other and no less than God himself. The explanation for the real power of a vocation to rule the course of a life lies in the fact that it comes from God, an obligation I must pursue. So let's say you wake up tomorrow morning, you're getting ready, you're looking in the mirror, and all of a sudden you see Jesus standing behind you, and he says, I have a mission for you at work today. What are you going to do? Are you going to do it? Are you going to live out your calling in whatever it is that God has you busy doing tomorrow? Because I think if you do, you will have the privilege of experiencing our big idea today that success is managing what God gives you so well that he gives you more. See, a day will come when all your achievements, all your successes... All your works will be laid bare before the great worker of creation. And they will be evaluated. And it is my prayer that what I hear on that day is well done, 
good and faithful servant. And if you will begin to look at your work, whatever it is, through this success lens, that it's a stewardship and it's a reward that God is giving you, you'll hear those same words too. If you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, you have the opportunity to do that today. You're not gonna hear those words unless you've made that choice. And so as we stand and sing here in just a second, you have an opportunity to come forward and place your faith in him and be baptized. Maybe you have a prayer need and want one of our pastors or decision counselors to pray with you. We'd be happy to do that. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me and, and you respond as God leads you today.